Welcome to the Pharmacotherapy Podcast. My name is Jim Tisdale. I'm a professor in the College of Pharmacy at Purdue University and an adjunct professor in the School of Medicine at Indiana University. I also serve as one of the scientific editors for Pharmacotherapy. Today, we are talking with Dr. Jessica Smith about her team's paper entitled Impact of Concomitant Fluconazole on Direct Oral Anticoagulant Bleeding Risk. Dr. Smith is a specialty pharmacist in infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. Dr. Smith, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here on behalf of my team and to talk a little bit more about our study. Well, in this study, your aim was to evaluate the effect on bleeding risk when fluconazole is administered concomitantly with direct oral anticoagulants or DOACs. Can you describe some of the background and rationale for this research question? Yeah, sure. So as many studies do, this started out as a clinical question that came up during the course of caring for patients on the ID consult service. We talk about this in a little bit more detail in the manuscript, but essentially DOACs are hepatically metabolized through cytochrome P450 or CYP, um, specifically CYP3A4 and 5 enzymes, and fluconazole is a moderate inhibitor of the same metabolic pathway. So in theory, administering these medications together can lead to increased concentrations of your DOAC and therefore increase the risk of bleeding. With all of that in mind, though, there are no recommendations currently to avoid the interaction or to dose-adjust the DOAC when it's co-administered with fluconazole. So the question is whether this combination is actually safe to administer. And here at my hospital, we see a large population of patients who receive DOACs, and we also see a lot of patients with candida infections. So this question of whether we can treat patients with fluconazole is one that I get asked by my ID team not infrequently. And we also thought that we would be able to find enough patients who received the fluconazole and DOAC combination to study it and to have meaningful results. Well, your study assessed the influence of concomitant administration of fluconazole with the DOACs, apixaban, and rivaroxaban, but not with dabigatran or, or edoxaban. What was the rationale for not including dabigatran redoxaban in the analysis? The practical answer is that those are the two DOACs that we see the most at our institution. We weren't as worried about finding enough patients to include in the control group, but we also wanted to make sure that we would have enough patients in the combination arm with fluconazole plus DOAC to meet power and to make that meaningful comparison. At the same time, we wanted to ensure that our study question was narrow enough to answer. So let's say we had included all four DOACs, and regardless of the results, we might have wondered if one agent was driving our findings versus it was a class effect. So we ultimately felt that including apixaban and rivaroxaban would be most reflective of clinical practice at our institution, but also in the United States. And it would also ensure that we would have enough patients to include in our study. Can you uh, briefly describe the design of your study? Definitely. So this was a retrospective cohort study that assessed bleeding outcomes in adult inpatients who received apixaban or rivaroxaban with or without fluconazole over a five-year period from 2016 to 2021. Patients were assigned to one of two groups, either DOAC with fluconazole or DOAC alone, and we matched patients in these groups based on the DOAC received. We wanted to make sure that exposure to the DOAC and fluconazole was substantial enough for an interaction to occur, so only the usual treatment doses of the DOACs were accepted, and for fluconazole, patients had to receive at least 400 milligrams daily to be included. In both groups, patients had to receive their DOAC for at least 48 hours, and in the DOAC with fluconazole group, they had to receive overlapping therapy with both of these agents for at least 48 hours. 
We also wanted to minimize potential confounding, so we excluded patients who were receiving strong inducers or inhibitors of CYP3A4 and 5 or P-glycoprotein, since these are known to significantly impact DOAC concentrations. However, we did actually make a carve-out here for carvedilol and amiodarone because we often see these co-prescribed with DOACs, and had we excluded these patients, we worried that one, we wouldn't have enough patients in our DOAC with fluconazole group, but also we felt that including them was more reflective of clinical practice, and we wanted our study to have external validity. And then finally, we excluded patients with hematologic malignancies. Since we were looking at bleeding outcomes, we worried that including this patient population might skew our results, since these patients can often have abnormal blood counts and they might need transfusions for reasons that might be completely unrelated to their DOACs. What were the primary and secondary outcome measures? Well, since we were interested in bleeding risk, our primary and secondary outcomes were related to measuring bleeding. Um, the primary outcome was a composite of major bleeding, clinically relevant non-major bleeding, and minor bleeding events at 30 days. Our secondary outcomes included the individual components of that composite primary outcome, and then we also looked at discontinuation of the DOAC secondary to bleeding at 30 days. And how did you define major, minor, and clinically relevant non-major bleeding? We wanted to use recognized and consistent definitions for these, so we followed the definitions of the International Society on Thrombosis and Hemostasis. Major bleeding was defined as overt bleeding associated with either a decrease in hemoglobin of 2 grams per deciliter or more, the need for two or more units of packed red blood cells, hemodynamic instability, bleeding associated with a critical site, or bleeding that contributed to death. Clinically relevant non-major bleeding was any bleeding that didn't meet those criteria for major bleeding, but required or prolonged the hospitalization or resulted in laboratory testing, imaging, compression, a procedure, interruption of DOAC, or a change in other concomitant therapies. And then minor bleeding was basically any bleeding that was left. So any bleeding that occurred that didn't meet the definition of major or clinically relevant non-major bleeding. Can you describe the major elements of your statistical analysis? Sure. We used descriptive statistics to characterize our baseline population. And then for comparisons, the student's t-test and Wilcoxon rank sum test were used for quantitative variables, while chi-square and Fisher's exact tests were used for qualitative variables. And then we also used a multivariable logistic regression to determine if there was an association between fluconazole exposure and the primary composite outcome while controlling for confounders. We also performed an a priori power calculation to determine our sample size. We used the bleeding rates from landmark clinical trials for rivaroxaban and apixaban, along with the study that was published out of Taiwan, to predict the bleeding rates in each group in our study. And then based on our calculation, we determined that 216 total patients, or 108 in each group, would need to be included. What was your final sample size? And tell us a little bit about the characteristics of your patient population. Yeah, so based on that power calculation that I just described, we ended up including a total of 216 patients, or 108 in the DOAC with fluconazole group and 108 in the DOAC alone group. As far as baseline characteristics, our overall population was split pretty evenly between males and females. About 80% were white, and the median age was 64 years. The two groups were overall pretty similar, but there were more patients whose indication for a DOAC was atrial fibrillation in that DOAC alone group, 
versus there were more patients whose indication was venous thromboembolism in the DOAC with fluconazole group. Patients in the DOAC with fluconazole group were also a little bit younger. They were more likely to spend time in the ICU, and they had slightly higher creatinine clearance and lower hemoglobin at baseline. The majority of patients in the study received a pixaban. Um, that was almost 80% who received a pixaban. And 65% of patients had been prescribed their DOAC for less than three months prior to the hospital encounter that was evaluated as part of the study. The most common apixaban dose was 5 milligrams BID, and the most common rivaroxaban dose was 20 milligrams daily. Patients who received fluconazole mostly received 400 milligrams daily, and the median duration of overlap between fluconazole and DOAC was four days. But keep in mind that we only assessed inpatient data to determine this number since we couldn't ensure that patients who were discharged on both the DOAC and fluconazole would be adherent to these therapies once they left the hospital. And then as far as concomitant medications that could potentially interact with DOACs or increase the risk of bleeding, 16% of patients were also taking carvedilol, 8% were on amiodarone, and 30% were taking aspirin. What were the main results of the study for your primary outcome measure? The primary composite outcome of bleeding at 30 days occurred in 35 patients, or 32%, in the DOAC with fluconazole group, compared to 21 patients, or 19%, in the DOAC alone group. However, after controlling for proven confounders in the logistic regression model, which in this case, those proven confounders were baseline hemoglobin and concomitant carvedilol, this difference was no longer statistically significant. And what were the main results of the study for your secondary outcome measures? Major bleeding was relatively uncommon in this study and only occurred in 4% of patients in each group. Clinically relevant non-major bleeding occurred in 17% of patients in the DOAC with fluconazole group compared to 11% in the DOAC alone group. And then minor bleeding also occurred slightly more in the DOAC with fluconazole group at 12% versus 5% in the DOAC alone group. We also found that patients in the DOAC with fluconazole group were more likely to have their DOAC discontinued secondary to bleeding, but this finding was not statistically significant. The median time to bleed was seven days for both groups, and it almost always occurred in the inpatient setting. And then finally, we didn't see a difference in 30-day mortality between groups. It was overall low and similar between groups. Were any of your findings surprising to you? Yeah, so most of the findings were expected, I would say. Um, However, the relatively short median duration of overlap between fluconazole and DOAC therapy was a little bit surprising at first. The patients that we see on the infectious diseases consult service often receive long courses of fluconazole and are also hospitalized for longer durations. So I would have expected that number to be a little bit longer than four days. But with that said, a lot of times we start patients with candida infections on an echinocandin initially and don't switch them to fluconazole until we get MICs back. So the patient could be closer to discharge when fluconazole was started. And since we were only collecting inpatient data um, for that particular measure, that could at least partially explain why the inpatient overlap was shorter than expected. What are some of the limitations of your analysis? So most of the limitations stem from the fact that this was a retrospective single-center study. Bleeding events were determined by retrospective chart review, so they depended on accurate documentation in the medical record. And we also focused only on inpatients, so our patient population might have inherently been at an increased risk of bleeding compared to outpatients. 
Confounding is also a big issue. We did attempt to control for confounders by matching based on the DOAC received and also through our multivariable logistic regression analysis, but it would be impossible to retrospectively control for every potential confounder that could impact a patient's bleeding risk. We also talked earlier about the fact that we only included apixaban and rivaroxaban in the study, so these results shouldn't be extrapolated to other DOACs. And since almost 80% of our patients were on apixaban rather than rivaroxaban, it's also likely that our findings are more applicable to that agent. We excluded patients with hematologic malignancies, so our findings can't really be applied to that population. And then finally, even though we did perform a power calculation and our sample size was chosen based on that, it's possible that our study was underpowered to detect a difference in bleeding rates between these two groups. So what is your take-home message for our listeners and for readers of your study? Yeah, so overall, I think the results of our study are somewhat reassuring that fluconazole can at least be considered as an antifungal therapy in patients who are anticoagulated with DOACs, particularly apixaban. But it's really important to consider all of the limitations that we discussed and consider this combination on a case-by-case basis, taking into account the patient's overall risk of bleeding. And who knows, maybe one day we'll have a large prospective study that will provide us with more definitive data. Well, the full article is published in the December 2022 issue of Pharmacotherapy. Dr. Smith, thank you for sharing this additional insight with us today. Thank you so much.